Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hello, everybody. I'm Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by my old friend, Michael Swain, and a new friend, Rachel O'Dell. Michael has been in the, boy, as far back as I can remember, has been one of America's leading experts on US-China relations for most of my, the last, I guess, two decades. He was at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, part of their uh, Asia effort. And um, recently, I guess within the last year, Michael, joined the uh, Quincy Institute, which is a new think tank. Uh, Rachel is a fairly recent PhD from MIT, who then went to Harvard and now is part of the Quincy Institute's new uh, effort with regard to international relations. The full name, I should say, is the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Uh, I've done many programs with Michael over many years. This one is driven by a piece that he wrote on the Strategic Competition Act, the, the, the act that has just recently passed the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and tries to reset uh, what we're doing vis-a-vis -vis China. So let me start, Michael or Rachel, whoever wants to take the first question, um, give us a summary of the act, kind of its good parts, its bad parts. Obviously, you know, you you in the headline, you call it a declaration of a new Cold War with China. Obviously, you don't much like the act, but you know, there are some things in the act that are that are decent. So give us a summary and then we'll get into questions. But thank you both for writing what you write and uh, participating in this program. Well, thanks, Steve. That's great. Uh, really, really a pleasure to be with you again and to see you again, if just virtually. And really, really great that you responded to that piece that I that I wrote. And we've got more pieces that we wrote on the Responsible Statecraft website about this piece of legislation. It's really important to understand, and Rachel's going to add some points in a, in a second, that this is part of a very large process, this bill, which is uh, S1169, Senate bill. It's part of a larger process that's going on within both the Senate and the House to create a single large China-related bill that will also be uh, addressing issues like technology competition and innovation and those sorts of things. But it's on a very relatively fast track. Uh, it's pushed very strong by both, um, by both uh, Schumer and Pelosi, and it's now going through revision. Uh, and there's also uh, thus far a sort of house version of this as well. And it's really, as you've indicated, I mean, it's a mix of good and bad. There are some things in there about US competition and the need to improve it that are, that are good, uh, but there are a lot of bad things. Uh, in the, at least in the version that uh, we had responded to um, at this point. It's, it's overall tone, very sort of Cold War-like, very zero-sum sort of demonization, hair on fire kind of things about China's motives and policies, what's required to compete with China. Um, it's not all binding, it's not binding as, as, well, I should say it's not all binding as uh, this sort of legislation uh, is it's not it's not really uh, going to necessarily force the administration to do everything it has in there. Some of it's non-binding, but there are binding sections that, if they last, would not be good. 
for either the United States or for US-China relations. But let me uh, stop there and ask Rachel to add a, a couple of uh, comments about this too. Yeah, thanks. So I think to, to Michael's point, the, the Senate is a little bit further along in this process. And really the Strategic Competition Act is just one piece of a broader package of bills that are being you know, clued together under the name of a China legislation effort. And so the uh, Strategic Competition Act came out of the Foreign Relations Committee. That's what we really focused on because it has a lot of concerning provisions. Um, it's being attached to what's called the Endless Frontiers Act, which is really all about, mostly about an American industrial policy, essentially, and investments in research and development. And there's a lot of positive dimensions to that. Um, but the Strategic Competition Act, um, in addition to a lot of findings and senses of Congress that sort of uh, I th I oftentimes without a lot of evidence sort of present the most uh, extreme characterizations of Chinese behavior that exist in the sort of, sort of think tank ecosystem. It also has some provisions, for example, uh, one on Taiwan that would uh, prohibit the US government from imposing any restrictions on official contacts between uh, Taiwan government officials and the US government. And uh, it would, it, it would you know, Im impose another um, a, a, a review mechanism for educational exchanges, gifts and contracts that are over a certain amount in, in sort of critical technology areas, um, not super well-defined. Um, it would subject them to CFIS review, uh, sort, of, sort of securitizing these educational exchanges. Uh, there's ways in which it directs the United States to sort of counter the Belt and Road Initiative around the world. So there's a lot of these concerning provisions. As far as positive provisions, I'd say, you know... Okay. Let's, let's, uh, let's stay on the negative for a second. <laughs> and then we'll go to the positive. I mean, partly, um, you know, the, the, we seem to have had a problem in U.S. universities of disclosing gifts from non-U.S. sources. Now, the Quincy Institute, like us, does not take... We're quite careful not to take foreign money, not Chinese money, not French money, not Italian money, we don't take it. So isn't kind of the review of these uh, grants being made to universities a, a okay thing? So I think the first thing is that this particular provision in the Strategic Competition Act is not the right way to do it. I think there's certainly room for somewhat more oversight in, in in highly critical or sensitive technologies. Um, but the this isn't, first of all, it's not only applying to China, it's applying to any foreign government, which in some ways it's good. You don't want a China specific approach. You want a more, um, you know, country neutral approach in general, but it's actually having this perverse effect of sort of potentially chilling educational exchanges more generally beyond just with China. And so I think that the, the danger is that in- Does it apply to exchanges it to or grants? Um, it's gifts over a million dollars or contracts over the, they're worth over a million dollars and um, within a certain time period and in, in, in critical technology areas. Um, so the problem here is that it's subjecting it to CFIS review, which is not a body, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which is, which is not a body that's really super familiar with higher education, that's well optimized to be able to evaluate these kinds of contracts and exchanges. And it really sort of puts a default assumption that these kinds of exchanges are a potential national security threat, um, as opposed to acknowledging that scientific ex international scientific exchange is really critical for progress in combating things like climate change and pandemics. Um, and so I think that there are alternative proposals out there, something that's come out of the Senate Homeland Security Committee that would have different review mechanisms that might be a little bit better, but I still have some concerns that, uh, you know, 
you know, overly securitizing educational exchanges could having it have a chilling effect. And certainly, you know, universities need to be stakeholders in crafting those those bills. Yeah. Um, besides the Taiwan provision, which sounds like it could really bring the whole house of cards of U.S.-China relations down. Uh, it's a, you know, as Michael knows, I worked on the establishment of diplomatic relations in the 70s, and that is kind of fundamental <laughs> to the basis upon which we establish diplomatic relations. Besides that, what else is binding that, it, you know, the, the tone stuff, I mean, Congress is screaming at China all the time. There are tons of, there are hundreds of bills which are, have this demonization of China, but they're more or less, they don't do much. What else in the bill is binding that's gonna create problems? Hmm. Besides Taiwan um, and this, this issue of review, CFIUS review, I'm not aware of what else in there that is binding that would be truly as damaging as those two things would be. But Rachel, do you have others in mind? Yeah, I mean, I think, there's another area that's of particular concern is there's this there's this bill on countering the CCP's malign influence that's sort of embedded in the as one of the sections in the Strategic Competition Act, mm -hmm. and it entails um, authorization of a fund, a large fund to, that that you know it, it's it's not very specific how it should be used, but in general it's designed to sort of for the U.S. government to use this in countering China's malign influence, which um, you know I've. I, I think I've, I've written about, I also wrote about this for Responsible Statecraft with a colleague. I, I think there are certain areas in which, of course, the United States does need to counter uh, certain efforts by the Chinese, by the Chinese government that are, you know, th threats to U.S. security or that are, you know, undermining civil society in, in the United States. Um, but I think that the, the approach that this bill takes is it's not very differentiated. It doesn't really clearly define malign influence. And there's a real danger that that risk casting casting aspersions on a lot of positive US China exchange and so I think that just creating this big slush fund for countering uh, Chinese influence has a real danger of exacerbating anti-Asian racism and weakening the foundations of healthy US China relations is it to some degree though but you know so the US government or the Congress the executive branch a number of think tanks have this exaggerated fear of the Confucius Institutes around the country and they're you know, they've been a, a source of Chinese language training for Americans. And I think the three of us and most people even who disagree with our views think that's a training Americans in Chinese language is a good thing. So is some of this money intended to kind of teach Chinese language because we're going to cut off the funding from Confucius Institutes on that? So I don't, this, this particular fund that I'm referring to doesn't have anything earmarked specifically for that. So, um, you know, there are some sort of positive exchanges. There's, it establishes in another section, a Taiwan fellowship program that in, involves some language training, but I don't think there's any serious effort entailed in this bill to provide alternative language training, training for the Confucius Institutes that could really replace them, even though I think it would be great if we would invest more in that. Michael, did you get your Chinese language training in Taiwan like I did? I did indeed at the Stanford Center. And I got it at Shifan Dajie. Okay. So it, it may be an interesting circle that we're going through, that, that we may go back to the time when Michael and I started our, our, our study of Chinese. What's good in the bill? Well, I think this Taiwan Fellowship Program is one of those examples. I think it's a, you know, it's, it, it's a positive way of 
strengthening U.S.-Taiwan relations without undermining, you know, the one-China policy and and the stable framework for the relationship that's existed a long time. Um, there's also a provision on anti-Asian racism that actually recently passed independently, a, a version of that passed Congress. So, but that's in there, um, you know. And there's there's some components about enhancing security cooperation with other countries in Asia. Um, there's some there's something in there on the need for um, enhancing U.S.-China nuclear dialogue. Um, so there's a few positive provisions, but um, they're they're somewhat swamped by the more negative ones. I think we should, I should just add, Steve, that even though it's not binding per se, if they find their way into the final version, it really does establish a kind of bottom line and a mindset as if to say, this is what the Congress thinks about China. And it defines that in, if, again, if it follows through from what's in the uh, Strategic Competition Act, it defines that in such a extreme a uh, zero-sum kind of confrontational way that it would, I think, really suppress abilities of members and others to be able to define the goals of, of the United States vis-a-vis -vis China in ways that are not that, you know, that don't simply reinforce that tone, that mindset within this bill. And in that sense, it's, it's I think, more potentially important than just this past or, or past individual pieces of legislation, which might be much narrower. It's, a, it's going to be a very broad based, very sweeping piece of legislation. And, and I will just note that there are a lot of binding parts. I mean, it's a very long bill, hundreds of pages. So we're not instantly familiar with every part of it and, right. and, and not even mentioning all of them. Another one is there's, there's a section on security cooperation that calls for and, and this is one of those things that, you know, it probably wouldn't be super binding if the executive branch didn't want to do it, but it calls for joint exercising with Taiwan, uh, with the Taiwan military, and and for, you know, supporting Taiwan and acquiring long-range precision fires and capabilities that aren't super defensive in nature. And so, you know, there, there are many, many other offensive provisions in the bill, and that's just one of them. I mean, in some ways, the bill is structured like a Cold War style approach because it goes through each region of the world and what the United States needs to do to counter China in those regions. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of problems. With that. I should just add that there, you know, the administration from what I can understand has been of course talking with the committees involved in this. And it, it's the impression that we have that they're certainly not happy with some of the language that's in there and particularly with regard to Taiwan. Yeah. Um, I, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if there will be pullback on the characterization of the importance of Taiwan to the United States, which is defined in the Strategic Competition Act originally as part of America's Indo-Pacific strategy, Taiwan. And then there's a, there's a section that describes how important Taiwan is to the first island chain defense. So it basically tries to sort of set up Taiwan as a strategic asset for the United States, which if you carry that through, I mean, that would fundamentally undermine the one China policy. Uh, it would basically say the United States should not be in support of a peaceful uncoursed resolution of this problem through unification because we don't want the Chinese to have control over Taiwan for strategic reasons. And you know that I think if it really did carry through and if it really did influence more legislation in terms of lowering barriers to dealing with Taiwan in a various ways, mill mill and otherwise, you, you could see a significant impact. 
Now, I don't think the Biden administration wants to go down that route at this time, and I think they've pushed back against it. But that misunderstanding of the nature of U.S. policy is in there. The, um, I guess that's somewhat related to my next question, which is, you know, we've seen, we thought the Hill was more uh, negative, more looking for a new Cold War. But, you know, last night we heard um, the era of constructive engagement with China is over. How different is the executive branch view from the congressional view now? And maybe this bill does represent what the executive branch is thinking. Well, I think in terms of basic approach, basic assessment as to you know, the fact that China is a dire threat to the United States, um, I don't think they use the term existential threat in, in the legislation and the administration has not recently used this, but I think there's a lot of overlap in how they look at China and what it represents to the United States. I think the Biden administration is less extreme in its characterization of specific differences with Beijing. And um, I think it's more marginally receptive to trying to cooperate with Beijing in certain areas, despite what Kurt Campbell has just said about the era of engagement being over. The State Department itself has already issued statements that indicate that it, you know, it, it has to be able to engage with the Chinese in a variety of different areas. I mean, this was, this was in fact, Steve, uh, something that even the Trump administration referred to. The Trump administration in his 2020 strategic analysis of China stated that the United States must engage China in a variety of different ways. So to make this kind of blanket statement that it's, you know, the administration, that the era of engagement is over, I think is, is too much. I mean, it's, it's extreme and it's not certainly in line with the interests of the United States in my view. So I think that, you know, the, the, the approach is, more, is, is a little bit more pragmatic. The approach is, is more, less ideological uh, than you get on the Hill, but you've still got fundamental problems here with how the administration is going to deal with China, not just from the point of view of sort of zero-sum competition, but from the point of view of the areas of constructive competition that could occur, where do you really need to be able to have serious cooperation and how do you go about doing that when you're sort of demonizing large parts of China or the Chinese leadership at the same time? I mean, they haven't really addressed any of these issues in any real meaningful way. They're, they're doing a China policy review, as you, as you I'm sure know, at this point in time. I doubt very much there's gonna be many surprises in it. I think you'll get versions of what you've heard already and from Kurt Campbell and, and others. Um, so to me, there are distinctions that you know, are less hair on fire kind of thing uh, in, the, in the Biden administration's approach to the issue, but I still think that the overlap is very, very significant. One thing I think that's actually interesting to note is that just this week, the uh, House Foreign Affairs Committee Chair, Congressman Meeks from New York, he issued uh, his version of, of a China bill that would be sort of the House counterpart to the Strategic Competition Act. It's called the Eagle Act. I think it's the Expanding American Global Leadership and Engagement Act. Um, and you know, it, it, it borrows some components of the Strategic Competition Act, but it really adopts a very different tone, a much more measured tone. And it cuts a lot of the, 
the findings I was referring to that are sort of the more most extreme characterizations of of China's intentions and behavior, and it it really tones down a lot of the language about how the whole U.S. all you know whole of government effort needs to be organized around countering China. That's in the Senate version. It's not in the House version, and it does call for co cooperation with China on things like climate change and and global financial stability and nuclear security. So. Um, you know, it still has, it's, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd still think that it's, it's not a necessary bill, just given that it, it has a lot of these, uh, some things in common with the Strategic Competition Act, but it, it keeps the positive things and gets rid of a lot of the negative things. So I think even on the Hill, there is some variation um, and, and more of a desire to have a more positive approach to the relationship that's, yes, competitive, but still constructive. I think, I, I mean, I, Totally agree with Rachel on this, Steve. There's, we need to be a little cautious about. We don't want to just simply assume everybody on the Hill is kind of, you know, hair on fire. There, there are people in both the House and in the Senate who are very concerned about the direction of U.S. policy in general and the tone and the characterization, uh, both in this legislation that we're talking about and and elsewhere. Um, the Meeks uh, bill is really his bill, and it's not sort of the House Foreign Affairs Committee's bill. At this point, it's his opening bid, um, as we see it, in the dialogue with the Republicans in the House side to try and get some kind of uh, alternative language and wording there that the Republicans uh, and the House and the, and the Democrats can 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 live with, and then take that to the Senate side and then work through reconciliation. Well, that was going to be my my next question, which is, what's process going forward? When should we, does this make it what's the likelihood of it make it and when would it kind of enter into law we've seen the chinese ministry of foreign affairs spokesman already you know criticizing it strongly yeah so actually today i mean it's a very live process on the senate side and they've been voting on an amendments the last few days it you know it, again the strategic competition act is part of a much broader package of a whole number of bills and a lot of them are not just I mean, the Strategic Competition Act has in some ways been less controversial than other parts of this that focus on the economic relationship and, and economic investments in the US. And so there's been a lot of you know, haggling and negotiating over that. And they, I believe that about an hour ago, a cloture vote passed to close a debate and amendments on the bill. So I think that means that it, they'll, they'll vote on, the, on the, this broader package, which is called the Innovation and Competition Act um, by the end of the week in the Senate. And it's likely to pass um, with, you know, pass the filibuster proof uh, threshold, 60 votes or more. So, you know, and it just really is, they're trying to get this bipartisan win. And so that's, that's been Schumer's big emphasis. Now on the House side though, it, the process is much less further along. Uh, they're, they're still in the stage of getting all the different committees to prepare their components for this package. You know, and the Eagle Act I mentioned from the House Foreign Affairs Committee chair is the would be you know what the, the democratic chair of that committee wants to contribute but the, even even the committees still have to negotiate their pieces of the package then it has to get packaged together by house leadership and you know so all these committees have to pat, do markups and have to pass out of committee then there has to be overall votes and amendments on the on the floor of the the full house and so that i would guess and it's recess next week so i think we probably still have a few weeks before you see anything coming out of the house at least and then they'll have to go through reconciliation process. So I, I think it's there's high chance, good chances that something will pass sometime this summer. 
Um, and, you know, in terms of, I'm not sure exactly of when it would go, you know, when the effective date is and different components, components of the package would go into effect at different times too. You know, I was interested that there was a provision, you know, I, like you, have not looked at every provision, but there was a provision relating to intellectual property theft and the need to kind of just keep a list, a public list of where U.S. courts have found there's been intellectual property theft, where there's been coercion to turn over intellectual property. Um, and I actually think that's a good thing. And I think it's a good thing because when you listen to administrative, especially previous administration officials, you know, they talked about trillions of dollars of intellectual property theft. And I used to say, show me where, <laughs> show, tell me the companies. So in a lot of ways, the, the disclosure would show, yes, there is theft, but kind of what Michael's saying, it's not hair on fire. It's not beyond comprehension. It's right. actually quite limited. And China's indigenous innovation is now much more serious than much more competent than what we used to think it was. Well, of course, it, a lot of it depends on the details and how you define intellectual property theft and how important it is and who's going to have oversight on this process of identifying it. It's subject to all kinds of political chicanery of one sort or another, I think. But I, I definitely share your view, Steve. I think a lot of the assessments that we've heard in the past about intellectual property theft have come out of reports uh, on, on the broad question, which used to assess $600 billion per year. Now, people didn't recognize that that was a total, total assessment for all intellectual property by all countries. People tended to assume that was China, um, and if they didn't, they said, well, the vast majority of it is China. And then you say, well, where do you make that breakdown? Where does that come from? And the answer is almost always, in fact, I've never seen an exception, it's classified. Yeah. Yeah, I always go to the footnotes when I see those statements and the footnotes are not very yeah. useful to put if it. If you track it back through the footnotes, you'll find that the ultimate footnote usually is a classified document. So they don't give you a, rati a rationale openly. Yeah. Even in the USTR reports, uh, they make, you know, especially in the previous administration, there were conclusory statements. And when you went to the footnotes, the footnotes didn't particularly support the conclusory statement. Mm -hmm. So we're in this position. Um, what legislation should we have? In other words, if you could somehow wave a magic wand and say, all right, this is the legislation we should have, or is the answer is, the existing system is fine. The executive branch just needs to do a better job. Well, I would say just a word, and I'll let, I'll let Rachel answer this as well, that there certainly needs to be legislation, Steve, by the United States that incentivizes more uh, domestic investment in areas where the US needs to be more competitive. So these aspects of the Unlimited Frontiers Act and others that, that really want to identify and support R&D in high-tech areas that we all know are gonna be critical to the future. All those things are good. Um, I think it's bad to frame all of that in terms of, oh my God, the Chinese are gonna get us, so we've gotta make this, you know, because then everything becomes a question of countering the Chinese and your assessment about what you need to do then becomes very, very uh, narrow and very zero sum. You close off the idea that in fact, there are areas where you actually should compete and not just compete, but cooperate with the Chinese on technology. I mean, they're a major tech player. 
Not everything they're doing in technology is related to national security. So I think you need that kind of legislation and you need to avoid framing it in that anti-China way. And you need legislation that really does more right-size the threat of what is the nature of the threat to the United States by China in terms of actual threat, threat about certain uncertainties in the future, which often gets mixed up. It's not a clear threat, but it could become under a worst case situation. But you don't want to assume that that is in fact the case. So you want to make that sort of qualification. Rachel, do you have anything to add? Uh, I, I agree with all that. I think the only thing I would add is that, yes, the executive branch does need to do better. Um, there are things that, you know, in an ideal world, the legislature could be calling for that would be more constructive. They have a lot of things where they're trying to sort of guide or, you know, prod the executive branch in a certain direction that I don't think is very constructive. They could instead be calling the executive branch to, you know, build better crisis management mechanisms with China or to, you know, do things like renew the U.S.-China Clean Energy, Energy Research Fund that's expiring next year. I mean, there's a lot of positive ways they could contribute, um, but those are also things the executive branch could do on their own and needs to do. And I think there's actually a lot of ways in which the Trump administration, especially in the past year, took a lot of executive actions to really undermine the U.S.-China relationship and people-to-people -people exchanges and you know, journalistic exchanges and uh, you know, scientific collaboration, things like the Peace Corps and Fulbright programs, a lot, a lot of these kinds of measures, you know, the vast majority of which have not been reversed yet by the Biden administration, but which easily could be. And I think they need to take, they need to take more action. Well, we're, we're out of time, so, and you've raised a question which we could do a whole separate program on, Rachel, which is why have they failed to reverse? Why has the Biden administration not reversed some of these policies which don't really do anything to hurt the Chinese, but really hurt the American people, hurt academics, hurt exchanges, hurt the working families of the United States. I mean, finally, Catherine Tai is speaking to Leo He. These tariffs are really, you know, hurting the American people. And mostly, the worst part about it is it really hurts working class families, rich people, people in government, they don't much notice the effect of, of, uh, of the tariffs, whereas poorer families, working families do. And it strikes me, and Biden in the, in the campaign had talked about this, but it's, you know, again, I don't count 120 days since that they've been in office. They've been in, in the office effectively for six and a half months. Once the election was decided, they knew they were good, they were going to be able to implement these policies, um, and they're not being implemented. So wh why is that? Why do you think that is? Well, I think that with at least with a lot of the people, the people exchanges I mentioned, I think their, I think their calculation is probably right now we're still in the middle of a pandemic. They're, you know, they they wouldn't we wouldn't be actually having these exchanges anyway, um, even if they hadn't been banned by the Trump administration because of that. So they, are, there isn't, they don't feel that urgency to restore a lot of the connections. And so I think then the domestic political calculations come in and they figure, well, right now we want to be tough on China. We don't want to be taking too many hits from the Republican side. And so why do these things that, you know, maybe eventually we'll get to them, but, um, you know, it just, it just would give them more ammunition to call, you know, call him China Joe or Beijing Biden, which let's it's be real, they're going to do that no matter what. Um, but I, I think that's, and I, yeah, I think that's the basic calculation on a lot of it. It's very clear, Stephen, I think where they, where they are and where they want to go here, the Biden administration, they're emphasizing domestic renewal, domestic improvement, improving with allies, improving relations with allies, 
And all of that is basically not directed specifically at the Chinese, but it's all implicated with the Chinese. And they wanna be able to advance all of those areas and then be able to then say, okay, now we'll deal with the Chinese from a position of strength, which is what Biden has already said. So we shouldn't be out there signaling that we wanna improve relations with China right now, because we wanna really make it very clear to the Chinese that what we say has a lot of backing behind it. And politically, that's important for them in dealing with the allies, and it's very important for them in dealing with the Republicans. And I think that's what explains a lot of it. And do you think that's a correct calculation? I think, it, I think it's, no, I think you need, you can't just put the China relationship on hold while you're moving along in these other areas to try to improve your leverage in some ways. You've got to be able to understand clearly what it is you want and where and how you need to be able to engage with the Chinese. This idea of no engagement is just nonsense, of course. And you need to be able to then set up what other parameters, what, are, what kind of policies are you going to be implementing? And you have to be able to do that through some level of engagement with the Chinese. You can't just all predicate it on, we're going to set up what we want. We know what we want. We just need to get outside backing, and then we'll go to the Chinese. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think it's, it's wrong in that sense. And I think it's wrong in that it also would possibly try to move the allies and friends and partners in directions that they're not comfortable going. I think they look at something like the Strategic Competition Act, and my guess is a lot of them are not reassured by it. They're bothered by it. Um, yeah. Even though the administration, a lot of Washington say, oh, this is what the allies want. We have to be tougher with China. Well, yes and no. Uh, I mean, isn't that your rea reaction too, Steve, and talking to people or in different, yes. I mean, I get contacted by embassies and others who want to talk to me about this whole issue of U.S. policy and where it's going. I mean, what are the objectives here other than we need to win a competition? Uh, how does that really relate to the overall interest we have with the Chinese? Where do we balance in these areas between the different functions and, and purposes we want? None of that is being convincingly, in my view, presented by the U.S. administration. I think I think Michael, your analysis is is correct. Um, what troubles me, and I guess partly because I spent my life in business, not in in U.S.-China business, but in business. But it, there's an assumption of a static quality that is simply wrong. It's all moving. That's number one. Number two, markets. When someone changes. A when behavior changes, it doesn't change temporarily, it changes permanently. So I was talking to a manufacturer with the tariff still in place who said, you know, I got to sell to China, I got to sell, still sell, sell to the United States. But with these tariffs in place, I'm locating in Canada or Mexico. I can sell into the United States with no tariffs and I can sell to China with no tariffs. That decision, which is now made, is not going to be reversed. They're not going to sit there and close the, the Canadian facility and say, oh, the tariffs are gone now. So this it's it's a slow, um, it, it's it's a drip, drip, drip. And the other, and you know, the the the, the, the these delistings trouble me deeply because they don't hurt the Chinese companies, but they do hurt employment in the United States, especially in my hometown, New York City. But these companies just list in Hong Kong, Singapore. Tokyo, they don't sit there and go home and say we can only work and we can only list in China. They just list elsewhere. So we we like are playing whack-a-mole. So we whack them in New York and they just turn up elsewhere. So yeah. it's I don't understand. Now maybe I'm told this may reverse very soon, but I don't understand why on January 21st that wasn't reversed. 
It just hurts Americans. And I guess it's exactly the point that you and Rachel make, which is the, you know, they need to <clears throat> kind of have a relationship with folks on the Hill and have a, a consensus on what they should do. We're way out of time now, we're way over, but uh, Michael, Rachel, thank you <clears throat> so much. Uh, we will have to do this again when and if the Strategic Competition Act becomes law, because it will have lots of implications for all of our work, how we live every day in the American people. But um, I thank you so much. It's now, we're happy. This is, I think, the first program we've done since with you since you joined the Quincy Institute. Pleased to see it playing an important role, and uh, it's going to be an important voice going forward. So. Thank, Thank you so much, Stephen. Really appreciate the invitation to talk with you today and uh, hope we have more such conversations in the future. Thank you. Will do. Thanks. Okay. Thanks all. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.